So today I'm here with another Career Spotlight interview. I'm here with Dr. Sue Biggins, who's a cell biologist at the Fred Hutch. Thanks so much for being with me, Dr. Biggins. Thanks, Sophia. It's great. Yeah, so do you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about what you actually do? Sure. I work on how cells inherit the right chromosomes when they divide. And as you know, every cell has to have 23 chromosomes from mom and 23 from dad. Yeah. And you have trillions of cells in your body. And so what I'm really interested in is how you can have trillions of cells in your body and they always get the right chromosomes when they divide. Yeah, that's fascinating. So how did you get to becoming a cell biologist? Yeah, it was kind of a long road. My dad was a scientist, so I kind of understood the lifestyle, Uh but I did not want to be what my parents were. So when I went to college, I definitely thought I was going to do something different, and I actually dabbled in urban planning because I also love housing and cities. So I did that for a while, and then my love of biology just became clear, so I became a biology major. And then once I did that, that was interesting too. I just assumed I'd be a doctor and I even took the MCATs and everything. And it was right before my senior year of college that I worked in a lab and I realized how much I loved working in labs and doing research. And so then I completely pivoted and decided I was going to be a lab scientist instead of a doctor. Wow, that's so cool. So what accomplishments or discoveries that you've made do you think are your biggest? Or what you most yeah, have? by far there's a big one that we've gotten a lot of recognition for. And that is for the chromosomes to move into the daughter cells when the cells divide, they have a machine and it's called the kinetochore. Uh-huh. And that machine is what does the movement of the chromosomes. And it's a huge machine. I mean, it's one of the biggest um, complexes in the cell. And we kind of knew what the parts were, but no one had ever been able to get the kinetochore out of the cell to study how it worked. And I had a really talented graduate student who figured out how to isolate kinetochores from cells. And when we figured out how to do that, it opened up the door to do all these interesting things, which is put tension on these kinetochores and figure out how they act like tow trucks to pull things. Yeah. So that was the the biggest thing we did. Mm -hmm. That was around 2010. Yeah. (laughs) That's a while ago. Yeah. So what has discovering this kinetochore, what have you done more research further after discovering that kinetochore? Yeah. So to follow up on what I was saying, the big thing was the forces on the kinetochores determined how they behave. And so the big thing we wanted to do after we had gotten them out of the cell is then put them under forces. Yeah. And I thought that that would be hard, but this is actually a good lesson about science. Science is extremely collaborative. That's one of the other really fun things. And so I knew, I don't really know how to do physics. Mm -hmm. I knew that what we needed to do is to put them under force. Yeah. I had no idea how to do that. And so there was a guy at the University of Washington, his name is Chip Asbury, and he's in the biophysics department. And I called him and sort of told him what we wanted to do. And he's like, oh, I think we can do that. Come on over. Mm And so we started this really lifelong collaboration. With his help, we were able to use these things called optical traps to put them under tension. And that's where you focus light into a really tight beam Mm -hmm. and it naturally attracts objects and it lets you manipulate objects. And so we've been able to do a ton of experiments by using these optical traps to discover how forces regulate this kinetochore machine. Yeah. Do you collaborate with other departments a lot in your research? Yeah. Over the years, what you tend to do is when, when you hit a point in a project where you know there's a technique that would help you, you have two choices. One is to sort of get it going in your own lab, and that can take a long time. Mm -hmm. I think it's much faster and a better use of taxpayer money (laughs) to actually find someone who really knows what they're doing and just collaborate. So over the years, I've had many really excellent collaborators. So are you still working on things uh, relating to this kinetical yep. now? Is yeah, and it's kind of funny because I've had my own lab for 22 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, and a lot of people ask me, <laughs> haven't you figured this out? But what you find running a lab 
is that every project actually leads to many more projects yeah. rather than the opposite way. Uh -huh. So as soon as we learn one thing, it, it sort of opens up 10 new questions. Yeah. And then there's the next 10 things to do. And I always say it's hard for people who aren't scientists to understand what we do. And that's because the way teaching is set up, you know, in high school and college is to teach you what we know, mm -hmm. not what we don't know. Yeah. And so it's hard to understand that every time we discover something, then it has all these new questions for us. So what aspects of your job do you think are the most gratifying to do? There's a lot that I really love. I'd say the number one thing is discovering something that no one else knew and knowing yeah. that one, one thing is fundamental science, it always looks like it is curiosity driven. And so for some people it looks like it's not practical, but it's where you have these huge breakthroughs. I mean, I tell everyone when Watson and Crick discovered DNA, they weren't trying to solve cancer or any medical mm -hmm. problem. They were just trying to understand something fundamental. Yeah. And that broke open the door for all these disease, progress in disease research, right? Mm -hmm. And so working on something really fundamental, I still find very satisfying because you have no idea where it's going to yeah. lead. And so I, I think that just making fundamental discoveries is truly satisfying. Yeah. I love training people. Uh -huh. I love, I've had tons of graduate students and, you know, one's a professor at Stanford now. Oh, wow. Others work yeah. in industry. They do all sorts of things. One's a writer. So I love seeing my students' successful training that they can apply to whatever they want to do in their life. So that's another really gratifying thing about yeah. it. What, what would you say is the most challenging? Like, is that? I think getting money to do your research. Um, the NIH funds most of the research. They don't have a lot of money to give to anyone lab. Yeah. And over the years, you'll always have projects that you can't do because you don't have the money to do it. Uh -huh. And I, I think any scientist would say that that tends to be what limits them the most. So it's a challenge. Yeah, it, that, that sounds very challenging. Yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky because I have money from the Howard Hughes mm -hmm. Med Medical Institute, which funds about 300 scientists in the U.S. And they give us a lot more money than the NIH. They also don't restrict what we do with our money. Yeah. So when you get fund grants from the NIH, you have to kind of do what they want use. you to do. Yeah, whereas that... HHMI sort of tells you you can follow your intuition. Yeah. So what does a typical day-to-day -day look like for you? Very different depending, not just on the day, but also um, on the point in your career. Yeah. When I started my lab, I worked in lab pretty much full-time. Mm -hmm. Now I don't work in the lab. Um, and that's partly because my lab is much bigger now. Mm -hmm. And so just managing projects and writing grants and papers became a full-time job. I also took on the director. I'm the director of basic sciences, oh, wow. at, which is sort of like the department chair yeah. at the Hutch. Yeah. And so that's kind of like a second job uh -huh. now. And that really keeps me busy. And I like that. You asked what's gratifying. The reason I do that is I feel like the Hutch was really important for my success because they sort of had a be fearless and take risks attitude, and that's what led us to purify the yeah. Kinetocore. I want to keep that environment for the scientists who are there, the junior scientists coming in who um, are just starting their labs. And so I'm a big advocate for those scientists, and that's why I'm the director. But I, I won't do yeah. that forever. Yeah, and I guess for junior scientists or for those even younger, what advice would you have for them? I think take risks. Yeah. I mean, when I look back on it, some of the stuff that ended up being our most important accomplishments were the riskier things that mm -hmm. some people might have been worried about doing. And as I said, I think the Hutch fostered an environment that let me take risks Yeah. and not and wasn't worried if I failed. If you're too afraid of failure, it's not a good 
good um, career because yeah. you know ninety percent of what you try might fail. Yeah. But then it's worth it when you have the hit. The ten percent. Yeah. Exactly. Works. Yeah. So, what skills or attributes do you think are going to be most important in the next generation of scientists? Well, skills, I can say for sure there's a shift towards computation. Yeah. You know, when I went to grad school, we didn't learn computation. Yeah. There's no doubt that all of science uses tremendous amounts of computation now. So, I think you have to collaborate or learn the skills yourself. Yeah. So, there's going to be a lot of that. Artificial intelligence is going to be an important mm -hmm. part of both medicine and research going forward. Yeah. There's no doubt certain things will be, be done better mm -hmm. um, by training AI. computers. Yeah. 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 So I think for skills, if I were going into this field now, I would gain more computational biology skills. Do you go into this field again if you were yeah. in this present day? Oh, uh, this field, well, you know, of course I can be very strategic now. Yeah. Okay, so I got really lucky that I got this unrestricted funding. However, it's not something that you should go into the career thinking that's going to be yeah. the way you solve your funding problems. So I guess if I did it again, I'd probably be more strategic and pick something that had a little bit more mm -hmm. um, ability to get funding from more than just general medicine. And so yeah. most of the scientists that are in my division can get funding from multiple NIH institutes, so uh -huh. like, you know, like infectious disease as well as general medicine mm -hmm. or cancer institute. I really only fit into one institute. So, so I would be a little more strategic about that. Yeah. But I would still do the same thing. Yeah. And then, I guess my final question is, like, women have been historically underrepresented yeah. in scientific fields. Do you feel like you face more challenges because of that? I don't think I do now. Looking back, I can see places where I probably did. I think it's a very good environment for women now compared mm -hmm. to when I started. It yeah. is frustrating to me, though. It's funny, when I got my job 23 years ago now, I remember thinking things were really changing. We have the same number of full professors that are women uh -huh. as when I got hired. We haven't improved that, and I don't know why, so I am frustrated. It seems like the hard part is retaining women, um, not getting there initially. Yeah. I still haven't figured out how to like what that problem really is. But I wouldn't suggest to women that it's a bad career yeah. and that it's not attainable. Uh -huh. I definitely think, yeah, I think it's harder for other underrepresented minorities than women. Yeah. Well, those are all the questions I have. Okay. Asked. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to talk to you. That was Dr. Sue Biggins, cell biologist. Again, thanks so much for letting me interview you.